Well, good afternoon. Thanks, Ian. It's really good to be here with you all. Um, as some of you know, when we have Cafe Church every six weeks or so, we take a break from our preaching series, which is currently, um, we're looking through the book of Acts, under the title of Mission Unstoppable. Uh, and when we're on Cafe Church, we take a break from that, and we look at God, the Gospel, and something. So I've picked advertising, which is, seems a bit weird, but hopefully by the end of it we'll, we'll make some sense out of it. So as a church, we believe that Jesus calls us to live within a culture, and the point of these, uh, God, the Gospel, and the Cafe Churches is to try and help us to engage a little bit better with the culture that we live in. So this afternoon we're looking at the idea of God, the Gospel, and advertising. And I kind of want to think about what is at the heart of advertising and where does that lead. And hopefully that will make some sense. And then I want to kind of shift our view to the, the gospel's response um, and then kind of say, what does Jesus say to the heart response um, to the foundation of some advertising? Hopefully we'll get there and that will make some sense. So by the end you'll be able to answer that question if I worded it correctly. So let me start however, by saying that I don't think that advertising is wrong or sinful or that Christians shouldn't work in advertising or that Christians shouldn't advertise their business or churches. Um, you know, like all things, the Bible doesn't have, like a lot of things, sorry, the Bible doesn't have a direct command about it. There weren't particularly any advertising agencies that we know of in the first century. Um, so there's some good in it and there's some bad in it. However, some adverts can be uh, inappropriate and unhelpful and upsetting. I, um, my dad flies model aeroplanes. And he, that just is way off topic, you may think. But he has a friend who was the editor for a, a magazine, a model aeroplane, mag, model aeroplane magazine that none of you will ever have heard of or read. Um, but he once sent a letter to, the, to ITV, I think it was, because he was upset at an advert that they put on telly where a cartoon robin flew into a window and then slid down the side of it because he thought that was not very appropriate. He wasn't a Christian, he just didn't like the idea of there being squashed robins on windows. Um, so... For him, that was upsetting from an advert. So hopefully that makes sense. So the thing is that when it comes to adverts, however, we are totally surrounded by them. Um, I think even to the point where we, we don't consciously take note of some of them anymore. You know, they're quite literally everywhere. They're like rats uh, and ants and Manchester United supporters. They're absolutely everywhere. There's no way you can go to get away from them. There are TV adverts. Uh, there's posters that people put up. There's junk mail, spam email. They're different things to the younger generation. Uh, websites have adverts plastered all over them. People text you with adverts. I get them from Vision Express. Never been. Don't know how they've got my number. Uh, you get clothing adverts. And there's probably a whole host more types of adverts that you can get. I thought I would ask this question. What is at the heart of advertising? Have a chat about that. Why don't you just take two minutes where you are to think, actually, what is at the heart of advertising, what are advertisers trying to get you to think and do in response to their adverts? Just take two minutes, um, chat to the people next to you. What ideas did you have? What is at the heart of advertising? Shout out a few ideas. Give it, yeah? <laughs> Companies want to make profit, yeah? So they definitely want to flog whatever they've got. Yeah. Yeah, they're trying to make it really appealing, whatever it is they've got to sell, better than whatever a competitor has. Yeah, letting you know that something new is coming out. Yeah, any others? Like you 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it tries to make that whatever it is like vital. Here's a test for you. What do you think is at the heart of this advert? You didn't know this was coming. So, um, any ideas? What do you think is at the heart of this advert? I've got an opinion. Um, so, we can see if they match. If they don't, you're probably wrong. Um, <laughs> you can go on. <laughs> Balance the glass on a toothpin's nose. Yeah? <laughs> Any other ideas? What do you think this advert is trying to say? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's very memorable as well, and people kind of see the toothpin and think, Guinness. No? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think there's an element to this. It says, show off your brand. Then it's got the Guinness on the toucan's beak or bill. I'm not sure of the official there. Um, but I think it's almost trying to say, look, if you drink this, you'll be cool. Maybe like a toucan, if that's particularly cool. But I think it says, look, show off your brand. Be proud to drink Guinness. This is what kind of cool people would do, um, even though they're full of calories. Okay, next one. Apart from the fact that this chap is thoroughly irritating on the Go Compare advert, um, yeah, what do you think is at the heart of that advert? Memorable. memorable? Yeah, very memorable. Yeah, Sam, who's never bought insurance in his life, as far as I'm aware, knew exactly what it was straight away. It was very memorable. Any other ideas? He's very loud, so you definitely will hear what he's trying to sell. Yeah. Yeah, as I was thinking about that advert, I thought almost he's... I felt like they were saying, you know, come to use us, because we'll save you the, the most money possible and money is kind of the most important thing, if that makes sense. Because I can save you the most, you know, we're the best at saving you what is most important. But you could disagree. This one I've struggled with the most. What do you think is at the heart of this advert? Oh, by the way, I'm assuming everyone knows when this advert would be played out. Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, so what do you think is at the heart of this advert? <laughs> yeah, Santa Claus drinks a Coke sometimes in the advert. Yeah. Yeah, just want to make it like homely and kind of, yeah, Christmas. You can't have Christmas without Coke almost. But um, I also think that Coke played this advert really late on in the season because uh, I don't want to kind of get wrapped into. We went into Morrison's a few weeks ago. Um, it was the, the first weekend in September and the advent calendars were up. I thought, this is just ridiculous. Why are the advent calendars already up? And I think Coke put this advert out later saying, look, Christmas has now started because the Coke advert's been on telly. And uh, in the office, you know, me and Sam said that's what we thought. When you see the Coke advert, Christmas has started. Um, yeah. Okay, last one. The Model T. Any idea what this advert is trying to get at? Yeah, they want you to buy a car, but they want you to buy this car specifically because this is a better car. <laughs> you know, this is an advert that says if you don't have a Model T, your car's rubbish. Do you know what I mean? You know, that's almost the kind of picture it portrays. You know, buy it because it's a better car. It may be, it may not be. And it was probably black. But um, yeah, I felt like you were trying to say, look, this is the best thing that you could buy. If you buy anything else, you're probably wasting your money. Okay, so what's at the heart of advertising? As I was doing some research, I came across a great quote that I'll read for you. And it said this. It says, advertising is also designed 
to make a person believe that life can be easy, fun and irresponsible without consequences. It leads one to believe that the pleasure of the moment is all that counts. Advertising definitely takes advantage of the altered prefrontal cortex in addicted individuals. I have no idea what that means. It, it may be the key that unlocks the gate leading to the pleasure pathway through presenting triggers to susceptible individuals. So the first half, I understood the second half about the brain. Um, I have no clue what that means. But I found it quite interesting that what it was basically trying to say is they think, uh, advertisers want you to think that life can be easy, it can be fun, and it can be irresponsible without consequences. That's kind of what it says. So some advertisers want you to say, to see that this product is absolutely necessary. You know, you absolutely need this. Whatever it is, you need it. You, you know, your life won't be as good without whatever it is. Or they try and make it more appealing than a competitor. Um, or that this will provide you greater enjoyment if you have this product. And, and for some, it could be that life has greater meaning only through acquiring more and more stuff. And preferably stuff that that company is selling, because obviously for them it's about profit. However, the problem is as soon as you buy something by a company, not long later they bring out an improved, um, like faster, fancier, shinier, louder, bigger, smaller stuff that you've already bought, but now they've improved on, and you have to have the new one because you don't want to be, look like you're, you know, you're behind. When Apple released their iPhone 5, I'm quite a fan of, of Apple products. I haven't got an iPhone. Um, but uh, I have been using apples since before they were cool, so I feel justified in that. Um, but when they brought out their iPhone 5, which was a different shape to the one they had before, very, very slightly, they predicted that 95% of users of previous ones would upgrade because you don't want to look like you've been left behind, which I thought, you know, it's just amazing that people would spend like £600 on a new phone eventually because you don't want to be left behind with a slightly different shaped phone that... Um, that is a slightly different colour. Yeah. Okay, but, but personally, when it comes to cultural engagement, which is what we're trying to think about, is I'm pretty much a very poor example of cultural engagement, um, which isn't a great thing to say. But at my previous church, I was a youth worker, and I was there for four years, and by the youngsters that I was looking after, I was persistently mocked for having no clue about what was happening in popular culture. So, you know, there were certain people certain brands and I didn't know what any of them were until I moved to Alfreton I'd never heard of a clothing company called G-Star or All Saints never and it was just because the kids were wearing them and mocking me that I didn't know who they were um, that I came across them and you know it led to them thinking that you know, I should be kind of pipe and slippers and left at home um, and they were probably right and I'd been quite happy with the pipe and slippers and some cake and they could have all their fancy new modern things that I had not a clue about. Um, but if there was something new and cool out, apart from an Apple device, I definitely didn't know about it. However, I think that simply uh, the heart of advertising is this, that it leads, of, leads all of us into a position of thinking, if only. I think that's what they're trying to get to. They want you to think, you know, if only I could have whatever that is. So it could be, if only I had the clearest skin that they're portraying in this advert, then I'd be beautiful and have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You know, if only I had that car, I'd be chiseled jawed like the man who's driving it. You know, I'd be 
more environmentally friendly or I'd be cooler or faster or safer because it's got a better end cap rating than, than I am currently. Um, however, buying a new car doesn't shape your, change the shape of your jawline. If I got you know, that deodorant or perfume, I'd be more physically appealing to others. And if I had that holiday, you know, with the beaches and the dolphins and Arnold Schwarzenegger, then I'd be truly relaxed. You know, they kind of think, if only I could get whatever it is, um, then I'd be whatever they want me to believe. So that's why we go out and buy stuff from adverts. I think what the whole idea there is, it's trying to make us make idols out of things. I don't think this is the same for all, all advertising, but basically we try and make, they, the adverts want us to make little idols uh, out of whatever stuff it is that they're selling. Um, they want us to kind of make our reason for living, acquiring whatever it is they want to sell to us for an enormous price a lot of the time. Um, or that, you know, it's the only thing that gives us real meaning in life. Instead of using things and loving people, we sometimes swap those around to use people and love things. And idolatry, when it, if it works out, if we make idols out of things, idolatry starts to, to screw up our priorities. And making something an idol, we give that something, whatever it is, be it like an object or an idea or a person, a child, whatever it is in our life, we give it a controlling voice in our life. And they begin to set our agendas and demand our time, and we can begin to, to worship kind of at the altar of our idols. Whether there are cars, holidays, gadgets, nice clothes, nice clothes, bought me by my mother-in-law, nice clothes, um, uh, you know, anything can become an idol. Even good things that are really, really good can become idols very easily. And we end up letting our idols define who we are. Okay. So where does this lead? Where does this idea of making idols lead? I think partly it can be a really kind of, it can be a little bit odd. I think we can, if we've got different idols of different things, we can start to play off our idols almost one against another. Uh, I was listening to somebody talk about this and they did make, they make like quite a, a comical kind of situation out of it. Our idols can vie for position in our lives and our time. So say we have an idol of career progression. We want to do better in our career. We, we work longer hours, but we, we're missing out on kind of good family time. Our idol of popularity uh, may cause us to spend more time with our friends at the expense of spending time with, uh, with Christian friends in, in church or, or midweek groups. But it's really important, obviously, for us to be mixing with other friends as well, that when they don't want them to damage our time we spend with other Christians. You know, if we're not careful, we can run around trying to please one idol and then another. So the guy I was listening to said, if you, if you idolise getting a new car, you, you spend longer at work to make more money for that, for that car, but then you've realised you've upset your idol of the, the nice, happy family. So you, you run home and you're all apologetic and you bring like, presents and flowers to try and appease that idol, and then you realise that, yeah, I haven't seen the idol of all your friends, so you go off and you... And you let them have a controlling voice and you have to try and appease all of them. So here's four things that I think this can all lead to. Hopefully this will make sense. So I think if we start to prioritise getting stuff, um, then we can lead to a position to be in a place of inferiority. Because either we don't have or we can't attain something that we would really really like that maybe other people can attain but we can't maybe it's a nice big house or a, a slightly more fancy 
mobile phone or fancy shoes or whatever it is that we want. Maybe we can't attain it, so we feel inferior to somebody else who already has. The second one is competition, uh, because we idolise um, popularity. We may feel that we need to, to kind of feed that um, with better things than our friends so that, that we get noticed. I only realised that I, was very comp- I had a very competitive spirit about five years ago when I got a new car. My old car was uh, pretty awful. When I, got the, when I got it valued, they said it's worth basically nothing. However, the government were doing a scrappage scheme so I could get £1,000 for it, which is an awful lot more than nothing. So I did, and, I got, and you, had, you had to buy like a brand new car. So that's what I did. So my car had, a, had an 08 registration, and I was driving it round, looking at everybody else's registration. It sounds completely ridiculous, but I was driving around thinking, yeah, my car's newer than that, my car's newer than that, which was stupid because it was the, like the new registration. Newer than that, same as that, newer than that, newer than that. However, a few months later... In the September, the 5.8 plate came out, which is, you know, six months newer than mine. That car's newer than mine. And that, but the problem is that, that that then persists. As time goes by, the 09 plate came out in 2009, then the 5.9, then the 10. I'm thinking, oh, my car's just getting older and older. Why? But I eventually got to the point of thinking, this is just stupid, and eventually gave up. And anyway, my kind of position in the motoring hierarchy is destroyed by the fact that I own a Vauxhall Corsa diesel, um, which is nothing fancy at all. So... Um, yeah, it t- took quite a lot for me to realise I was just being really stupid, uh, but very competitive in my, my spirit there. I think it can also lead to a, a spirit of restlessness, because our idols are never satisfied. There's always something new or something more exciting uh, to be acquired. And lastly, I think it can lead to this idea of envy, because it, we can look at others who have succeeded in pleasing their idols when we haven't. So let's shift and have a quick look at what is at the heart of the gospel. So I think at the very centre of the gospel message, the message of the whole Bible, the story of Jesus is this, that, that God came looking for us. The centre of the gospel is that, rather than putting an advert up saying, come and find me, the, centre, the central message of the Bible is that God came looking for us. God knew that the mess that the world was in, um, his plan throughout eternity, was always that Jesus would come into this broken world with its wars, its disasters, its family disputes, its illness, its homelessness, its anger, its immorality, its envy, and begin a massive reshaping project, one where Jesus would become the centre of our hearts and desires so that we would have life and life to the fullest. In John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. The reshaping that Jesus uh, wants us to do is to have our hearts and minds and emotions and desires changed from things that will only last a short time to a person who will last forever. That's the reshaping that Jesus wants to do with us. So instead of having voiceless idols, Jesus wants us to have a real walking, talking, living God. And that God is Jesus. The reason that the the message is empowering rather than draining like idolatry is that the gospel of Jesus begins and it middles and it ends with one main key idea. It's the idea of certain love. 
So before the world was made, God the Father, Son, Jesus, and the Spirit were a loving community. At the cross, they were a loving community. Now, they're a loving community. In the future, into all eternity, they will be a loving community. Compared to advertising its heart of idolatry, um, which is kind of like a, a black hole for our, our lives, time, money, and energy, the gospel is that Jesus came from heaven, where everything in heaven and on earth, yeah, everything, so even your, yeah, your clothes, your money, your time, your home, your family, everything belongs to him. Jesus comes into this world from a place of owning everything. He came into a broken world that we all live in. And amazingly, he allowed the, the power-hungry Roman state and the religious establishment that thought it would upset the apple cart to conspire against him and to kill him. Following that, Jesus rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven and he gives us his spirit so that we can live in his kingdom on earth. However, the question for us is where does all that lead and where does that kind of leave us? And I think it's quite a good question to ask. Um, and I think there's a bit of an excitement about the answer. This is where I think that the certain love of God in the gospel can lead us to. It leads us to four quite contrasting things. To the other one. Firstly, it leads us to security. Because if we know Jesus, we can be certain that he will never, ever let us go. He came all the way from heaven. He took on human form. He lived. He died. He rose again. He ascended back into heaven. Firstly, to deal with the wrath of God against sin. Secondly, to stand in your place and mine so that by faith we can know our sins forgiven. And thirdly, so that we can have a secure foundation for knowing that God isn't going to drop us at any time. Even when we do something wrong. He went to death and back to save us from it. He will certainly keep us to the end. The next one is contentment. Because when we realise that all we have is not and never will be eternal, our understanding of what really is absolutely key can change. Uh, we, uh, we can be content with poverty and knowing Jesus. There's a book, I can't remember who's written the book, someone might tell me in a minute, it's called Nothing Plus Jesus Equals Everything. Um, I can't remember who wrote it, but that's, that's the idea that if we we can be content just because we have Jesus. So Paul, the writer of a lot of the New Testament, writes these words in Philippians that um, Claire read to us. I'll see if I can read it in this small text. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have, received, uh, you have revived your concern for me. You, uh, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, and he goes on to say, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says the secret of his contentment ultimately is his joy in God. And that for Paul is the key purpose for all discipleship, is joy in God. Uh, second to last one is peace. Because firstly we know peace through the gospel. We can know peace with God. We were his enemies and some people still stand in that place. But by Jesus' blood we are brought into a good and right and perfect relationship with God. 
Secondly, we can know peace because we know that God proclaims certain truths about us, his people. We don't need to strive for meaning and acceptance because in God's eyes and heart, his people are his kind of beautiful, wonderful, perfect people. No one in God's kingdom is second best to another. We all come to God on the merits of Jesus and that brings us all to the same place and that place is before God. And lastly, before I begin to finish, uh, is generosity. Christians can be more generous because money isn't the reason we live. In fact, the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We can be freed from the desire to be self-sufficient because being made right with God is all God's work. We don't bring anything to the table. Even the faith that we respond to God with is a gift from him. We don't need to try and control every penny that we have. We can be generous with our finances, with our time, our affections, our love and compassion. Jesus was a whole generous person and we're to be like him. So I'm going to try and wrap it up um, in these three little clicks of this machine. So the gospel makes us see clearly. The truth of the gospel, simply put, is this. Oh no. We have set up our own idols that take God's place. We reject God's rule in our lives. That's the first half of the gospel. And that's where people who don't know Jesus live. And it says, oh no, because at that point people are enemies with God. However, there is the other half, which is, oh yes. Jesus came. He made a relationship with God possible. He came so that we could have life to the fullest came so that we would have a pure purpose in life. The stage between the oh no and the oh yes is a simple one. It's one of asking God to forgive us uh, for our past and to shape our future. In the the New Testament, I should have marked the page, Paul writes to a young pastor um, in one of his letters. And I'm looking in the wrong place. Um, In 1 Timothy, this is where you should mark things. Too many books that begin with T all around the same point there. Uh, At the end of the book of 1 Timothy, Paul writes uh, these words to Timothy. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides with everything that richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So as we finish, I just want to encourage you that the gospel is simply, oh no, and oh yes, there is good news us in Jesus so let's pray and then we'll sing our final song Father we thank you for the good news of Jesus, Father we thank you that even though we naturally make idols of things, Father we thank you that we can make Jesus the real centre of our heart and he's not an idol, he's a real living talking person and he wants us to have life and enjoy it to the fullest 
Father, I thank you that that is such an amazing privilege. Father, I pray that you'll help us to um, understand that a little bit more and understand what it means to have Jesus at the centre of our being. Father, I thank you that he is good and pure and that he is going to bring with him um, that sense of certain love and that he brings us into a relationship with you of certain pure love. Amen.